You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Sex, that's where I come in. Dead or alive, sex is always in need of my services. A service to which I sincerely apply myself wholeheartedly. Sometimes even in the daylight hour. Your stupid lives. Stupid. Stupid. That's all I'm taking from you. Get back here. Go. Show me a person, man or woman, who can say sex doesn't enter their minds more than they care to admit, and I'll show you a dead human. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Grab your shanks, folks. Next week, we are going to prison. Join that sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patient subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over six years or something like that now. Yeah, five uh, so, or six, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's like 140-something bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series, where we talk about new release genre films, so we definitely recommend making the jump if that interests you, patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so we'll give them their shout-outs here. Um, we had Spike Spiegel, we had The Brando, we had Ryan Paulson, we had Johnny Brindato, uh, we had C.E., we had Casey Campbell, uh, Dustin Cooner, uh, Sloppy K, Vigilante, uh, Thumb, Robbie Wilston, uh, Wombat, Mattia uh, Ivanovic, uh, just Jay, uh, Jill Morrison, uh, and last but not least, we had Jordan Myers, who actually signed up for an entire year of the show, which, uh, as awesome. a reminder, you can sign up, you can get an entire year of the show for a little bit of a discounted monthly rate if you're interested. So thanks to Jordan for doing that. Uh, that is the uh, one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I can see the stats, I can see you right now listening on both of those platforms. Give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. We appreciate that support as well. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the uh, poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you freaks have thought of a lot of things. You can get uh, just a shirt or a hoodie. You can get, uh, I think people have bought pens and pillows and notebooks. Uh, you can find the link to that in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone who's interested. Uh, but that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and uh, we would have had uh, first-time guest on Brendan Ross, the programmer of the Neon Dreams Cinema Club repertory series here in Toronto, who plays all kinds of uh, 70s and 80s neon noir, very uh, stylish crime films, and as a result, you can imagine what we talked about on his episode. <laughs> we did some very stylish stylish, autobiographical, and kind of emotionally fragile 
80s Los Angeles films with a double feature of James Bridges's um, very haunting and mournful neo-noir called Mike's Murder from 1984, which was uh, starring Deborah Winger and was their follow-up to Urban Cowboy. Mm. And it was just this really depressing sort of like drug dealing in L.A. film that was based on the real life murder of a friend of his. Yeah. Yeah. And I and we've said it in the, the last uh, last week, too, but it, it's got this doomed feeling to it because, you know, it's called Mike's murder. And that's essentially what you're waiting for. And it actually takes a little while. They sink you into it and really get you get to know the characters before all of the uh, the tragedy happens. So it's uh it's it's great. And Deborah Winger is awesome. She's become someone I I want to check out a little more. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, his uh, Brendan's pairing with that was a very underseen, kind of tender, sexy, buddy rom-com uh, film called Heartbreakers from 1984, which doesn't sound like immediately the vibe uh, to coincide with that, but it actually, same place, same kind of grubby mm-hmm. uh, location shooting as Los Angeles, and definitely does have like a more sort of... Uh, darker emotional quality to it that kind of bubbles up alongside the hangout uh, aspect and also just fun to see uh, Peter Coyote as like an S&M bondage fetish painter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 really good stuff and it's I, it, it's amazing too that it's like this sex comedy that just turns into a really sad bromance. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we had we had a good time breaking those down with Brendan last week, and both films were you know pretty underseen. So I I definitely yeah, recommend very. going back and maybe checking those uh, checking those films out as well. Uh, but uh, last week over on the Patreon feed, we did a bit of a left turn out of that episode, and we went uh, and did our first episode on the legendarily. Uh, you know, proclaimed worst filmmaker of all time. We talked about one Edward D. Wood Jr. Uh, and we talked about his debut autobiographical cross-dressing documentary psychodrama uh, <laughs> called Glenn or Glenda from 1953 that we we broke down. Uh, f- we actually talked a lot longer about it than I expected because it basically functions as a bizarre and sort of dated educational PSA about cross-dressing and um, but, but is also, you know, progressive for the time and also a confessional, like personal essay of a guy just who clearly wants to be seen and understood for who he really is and has Ed Wood actually basically playing himself, uh, anxious and terrified and coming out of the closet to his girlfriend played by his real life girlfriend, Dolores Fuller. And it. it was kind of an insane thing to witness for the first time as well as his notorious worst movie of all time. Uh, deemed science fiction horror film Plan 9 from Outer Space, where uh, uh, he took his obvious passion for a dead type of old-timey Hollywood movie that he grew up on and basically just, in our opinion, kind of tried his best to reanimate it with every <laughs> meager, no-budget Halloween store trick that he you know, knew how to do in this kind of uh, endearing way, even when the movie didn't totally work for us. Yeah, the, the specifically the cemetery set is a lot of fun. Just uh, a lot of just jagged looking branches, cobwebs, fog machine. This uh, this kind of I don't know I, I can't remember what you call them, but I guess it's like a tomb, but it looks like it's made out of cardboard. It's very fun. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 good. A stuff. giant <laughs> Swedish wrestler as a zombie just walking <laughs> just around, smacking it. people it's, and knocking them out. Yeah, it's, it's a good time. <laughs> 
It's wonderful. Ed Wood movies have a wonderful vibe to them. And I think we tried to, you know, go, go a little bit to bat for them instead of, uh, you know, trying to do the boring bad movie podcast uh, yeah. episode. So if you haven't heard that, that was over on the Patreon feed last week. And uh, it was strategically placed, I'll say, because uh, moving on to this week, we have a very special returning uh, guest joining us. I believe this is his third time. Um, talking with us. Uh, he is the uh, host, obviously, of some podcasts. I'm sure people have heard of the Important Cinema Club and the Michael and Us podcast. And that guest is Toronto's own Will Sloan. <laughs> Will, we're very glad to uh, have you on this week specifically because, you know, when I when I was being like, I, I want to have Will back on. Normally, we just obviously we have the guests just free reign, choose whatever you want. But I did kind of lead you on a little bit with this one because I was like, somehow we haven't talked about Ed Wood. And I was going scrolling through all of the writing I could find on Ed Wood. And Mr. Will Sloan's name popped up every single time you you I happened to research. Uh, I even tried to do research on this week's movies, and I was like, if you Googled these movies, your uh, previous articles came up on them. So I was <laughs> like, okay, well, Will is the guy for this um, because he is a, what, what do you call it? Is it a woodology? It is a, you are a scholar of Ed Wood. Um, uh, yeah, that, and you know, I'm, I'm not even the world's greatest woodologist. I mean, there are, there are some, there are some true freaks out there who really know everything and shout out to those guys. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that my stuff comes up when you Google these movies. What a legacy that is. Exactly. But uh, Will, as as it goes, we do have the guests bring the films with you. So which two, when I, when I said we wanted to talk about Ed Wood and I wanted some deep cuts, you selected these for us. So which two Ed Wood films have you talked or you brought with us, brought with you to talk about this week? And why did you pair them together? Well, the first one that came to mind was Take It Out in Trade, which is the last movie he made uh, that, you know, ki- kind of has its foot in the mainstream still. Um, which, you know, it, it may, or has a toe in the mainstream. It's his last movie that isn't like hardcore porno. Um, and I, I, I chose this one, frankly, because I think it's, I think it's like, um, for want of a better word, kind of good or like at, at the very least it complicates our understanding or the, the popular understanding of Ed Wood as a quote unquote bad filmmaker. I think it's doing a lot of like really interesting things. I think it's very much a product of the man who made Glenn or Glenda, but um, it also like it, it also just shows like different sides of him, shows different things he was capable of, and um, yeah, vex, vexes anyone who wants to put him in that golden turkey uh, box. And then yeah. uh, for the other one, you know, I could have I could have picked Jailbait. You know, I could have picked one of the one of the easier ones, but there's something about the only house in town, which he made shortly after take it out in trade. Um, or, or I mean, made is maybe not the right word for what he did to this. <laughs> um, it's this, it, it's, it's like no other movie I've ever seen. It's accidentally very dreamlike, which is a quality I like in a lot of Edwards movies, but in this one takes it to an extreme. It's maybe the most threadbare thing he ever made. And I just, I, it, it's taken up residency in my brain. I find it just a mysterious and endlessly strange place to be in. So I think I maybe want to work through some of my feelings about it. Oh, and also the only house in town is a movie that I think 
maybe you need to have been hit in the head a lot of times to really enjoy. Like it's, it's for the true <laughs> sickos. And I think I kind of want to talk about that too. I think I want to do, I also just wanted to like inflict it on you guys and see what would happen. Like, what would you No, We're, would, we're very stoked. You are yeah. still one of the only people who has ever brought full on pornography films with <laughs> you on the podcast. We've, we've kind of made our way sideways <laughs> into a couple of them talking about, uh, Hisayasu Sato, for example, a little bit of Doris Wishman, you know, so we've we've definitely had a, you know, flexed a little bit, but no one has straight up brought a sexploitation softcore pornography double feature and especially not that of made by Ed Wood. Probably, you know, most people will know him for Plan 9 from Outer Space and maybe you won't even know that he spent his 70s making starting with softcore pornography, eventually moving his way into hardcore pornography right before his death. Um, yeah, and so I'm not bringing is, these movies here just out of kind of like sheer like contrarian perversity either. Like, I think if you take Edward seriously as an artist, and I do, I think the movies that he made, you know, nineteen from 1970 to 1973, or you know that that small little burst of erotic films that he made. They do carry on a lot of the themes and ideas that were circulating in his classic movies, as well as the multitude of novels that he was writing around this time. Right. They do feel like a logical extension or maybe end point of uh, stuff that was percolating in those earlier movies. I find that interesting. I'm, I I think there's a temp- there can be a temptation to just want to put these movies aside, but I think if you, if you really like Edward these movies are a rich terrain. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. And I'm excited to, uh, yeah, we, we did Ed Wood of the 1950s, uh, last week and I'm excited to, uh, take a look, uh, more at the, cause we, including his debut. And now we're going to talk maybe a little bit closer to the end of his career. We're going to get kind of a little bit of a full portrait of the man. So, uh, that being said, I'm excited to jump right into it. Let's start things off here. Let's uh, talk about a take it out in trade. Another car from Berger, mom. He says, everything here is all wet. I'll get even. Mark my word, I'll get even with it. Vulgar. All right, we are talking Take It Out in trade the 1970 american softcore sexploitation noir parody written and directed by ed wood and as i mentioned we did a big uh, deep dive episode on ed wood and glenn or glenda and plan nine uh, last week over on the patreon so if you haven't heard that episode i would recommend going back to it for a little bit of context for this although i am glad that we have will to also fill us in on any details that we uh that that we flubbed as we go along here but for uh for the the, the short version we went into Ed Wood's kind of origins as a young boy in love with sort of like pulp horror and westerns and noirs and science fiction who, you know, loved performing in school plays and bands and graduated and moved directly from New York to L.A. with his scrapbook of Hollywood stars that he stole images and stills from from magazines. And he traveled in his Angora sweater and brown skirt combo that his mom dressed him up in uh, that, you know, began his sort of uh, uh, gender nonconformity and sort of fetishes that that he had and his alter ego, Shirley, 
who we'll talk about a little bit, who the name surely makes an appearance in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did also talk about his time living in crummy apartments and dodging collection agencies and trying to get movies made with various sleazy producers, uh, as well as obviously for anyone who's seen the Tim Burton biopic about him, his relationship with the late depressed and morphine addicted Dracula star, Bella Lugosi, whom he befriended and recruited into shooting a few minutes of footage for him on many of his early films so that he could put Bella's name on the poster and get various Hollywood actors that he liked uh, as a kid involved people like Lyle Talbot, uh, people like Vampira, who was in Plan 9, uh, and, and get them interested in making his kind of no-budget genre films. And I kind of wanted to begin there because despite the fact that this is very much a softcore porno film and it has all of the things <laughs> that you imagine right away when you hear that um this is also very much an ed wood film in terms of mm. his vision of la the kinds of people who populate his version of la that he knows and loves um comedy. and I, I yeah and and the humor especially and so i was i was quite shocked the first time that i kind of actually sat down and watched this and i was like you know it doesn't quite have his use of uh, Bella Lugosi, which definitely for him kind of symbolized uh, almost like a Sunset Boulevard style, like death of Hollywood that he loved. And he was someone yeah. who I really loved that he still shot and treated Bella like a movie star um, in, in even in his his, his old age um, there when everyone else had kind of completely forgotten him. And I, it's interesting that this kind of just has a sort of similar version of L.A. in it that I really liked. Jay Hoberman wrote uh, a bit of phraseology that I liked. He said, Ed Wood was a toadstool at the edge of Hollywood, nourished by the movie industry's compost. And I think... (laughs) That's so vivid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And I think that those classic 50s movies are sort of like if the institution of the Hollywood movie went to sleep and had a dream about itself. So, mm. you know, as you mentioned, he uses these faded stars from when he was a child, like Bella Lugosi, Lyle Talbot, Tom Keene, a bunch of cowboy actors. And then there are these people. And then you've got L.A. novelty celebrities like Criswell and Vampira and Tor Johnson or uh, Bunny Breckenridge, you know, we- weirdos who were kind of. Uh, eccentrics in the Los Angeles scene. Yeah, when and I then, heard that he was a carnival uh, guy for a while, yeah. I feel like Ed Wood's movies kind of opened up for me a lot, and especially the kind <laughs> of faces and personalities that he liked to populate his movies with. Totally. And then on top of that, you've got people from his own entourage, like wannabes, you know, his friends and hangers on, people who didn't have any sort of career outside of his movies. And You've got all these people who are sharing the frame and they shouldn't be sharing the frame. And they're enacting these very low budget facsimiles of the sorts of movies Edward watched as a child, like Bride of the Monster is a Bella Lugosi fan film. Um, his Western pilot Crossroads Avenger is a Western fan film. And uh, so they're like these Hollywood dreamscapes. And when you get to the adult films, it's kind of like the last third of Mulholland Drive, you know, when the <laughs> sleeper is beginning to wake up. Like, yeah. um, like this, you know, those early films are like the dream of Hollywood or, 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 or a, a, a unpleasant or, or not an unpleasant, a, um, a, a tumbling dream of Hollywood. And then 
And then you're waking up and you're seeing the world that Ed Wood actually lived in, but you're still sort of half asleep. Mm. And I think you see that in Take It Out in Trade, which I think just like as a as an L.A. movie is incredibly evocative um, and as an Ed Wood movie is also very evocative. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I was stoked um, tur- turning this one on because um, Jamie and I, obviously, we just started exploring Ed Wood for the first time last week. And I had seen a lot of clips and I had seen the Tim Burton movie. I kind of knew a little bit of what to expect going in and I just hadn't really jumped in yet. And, you know, we kind of we knew he was this fascinating figure in low budget exploitation filmmaking. We knew we'd have to talk about him at some point. And we also knew that, you know, he was famous for having, you know, such obvious technical limitations and maybe very little control and skill with filmmaking and like the typical sense of how people would use those words. And, you know, he made movies on whatever money he could scramble from investors, including, you know, like hustling the Baptist church for funding on plan nine, uh, for example, is something that he <laughs> did. Uh, and it, it resulted in many of his friends and coworkers basically either calling him this like lovable, passionate dude with a dream, or he was a self-destructive con man. And we kind of ended up liking his movies last week because the truth was that he was kind of something in the middle of those two things. And it really showed in his art. And despite how much people want to make fun of him for the poverty row cheapness of his films, the jump cuts, the strange incorporation of stock footage, the chintzy looking (laughs) sets, the no budget special effects or completely uh, bizarre and unnatural dialogue at times that even the actors were like, yeah, we were kind (laughs) of rewriting because we literally couldn't get our throats to say them the way that he had written them. Um, And there's just, there was just a certain amount of like childish do it yourself enthusiasm and occasionally accidentally surreal and dreamy beauty, which is something I'd never imagined myself saying about his movies. Cause I had seen Will kind of suggest that. And I was like, ah, is that true? And I was like, it kind of <laughs> is true. Uh, and there's a real beating heart behind it. For example, the, you know, the big sequence in Glenn or Glenda, which to me kind of defined the rest of his career. And you do see, you know, get, make its way through the rest of it is Bella Lugosi ranting about the green dragon over top of Ed Wood's real life fears <laughs> of coming out of the closet to his girlfriend. Like it, it's, it works as surreal nightmare horror. It works as sort of, you know, personal, uh, statement. And, you know, I, I was moved watching the sequence of everyone laughing at him and like surrounding him like Romero zombies, which is something, you know, that he was, you know, sadly not really proven wrong about in, in his real life. He did not get the fantasy cure happy ending that is maybe a little problematic to look at today. Um, and he ended up kind of broken up with and becoming an alcoholic and eventually dying in, in poverty. And in order to make money, having to write pornographic novels and make uh, sexploitation films with like we're going to be talking about today. So I don't know. There was just a, I was very primed queuing this up to have some more affection for Ed Wood than I expected. And then being like, well, this is, you know, he made this for the little bit of money that he could at the time so that he could uh, buy the liquor that he wanted from the local store. Uh, but I was just, yeah, I was a little surprised to see that this was actually more of a personal outing than I expected going into it. Yeah. Like even the, uh, like the very beginning with the the narrator, he kind of has that contrast of what he looks at as LA where he's like, uh, this is his kind of town. It's big, it's mighty, it's powerful. But then right <laughs> after that, he's like, there's smog, there's fog, there's drugs. <laughs> like it's yeah. just, it's um, a real mess, the, but I, even, but I love it, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And even as he's doing that, he's editing together these images of like, first there's like the skyscrapers in the city and kind of the, the busy life of that. And then it goes uh, to more of like the suburbs where people are poorer and, and the houses look a little bit more run down. And then he goes back to the city. It's kind of this back and forth uh, thing that he does. Um, and it is a little bit uh, jarring the way he edits uh, this film in particular. Um, all of his films have weird edits, of course. But, but this one I found... Um, either he was making a cool point with the, the contrasts that he was trying to go with, or the jump cuts really worked with uh, comedy a lot in this, I found. Um, like, they're, like a lot of the time they'll do something where, it, we'll get to the actual plot, but like with the detective where they'll set something up for him and be like, hey, I wonder what he's up to, jump to him doing some pervert thing, and it's kind of like over the <laughs> top and ridiculous. And, and I just, I don't know, I always got a kick out of that. I thought it was kind of, it really worked on a comedic level and it seemed uh, slightly more on purpose than some of the stuff um, that, that he's done in the past that still ends up working. Oh um, yeah, totally. Like when I saw this, when I saw this for the first time, it felt like kind of a missing piece of the Edward puzzle. Um, like mm. it, when we talk about him as an, a technically incompetent filmmaker or as an untalented filmmaker, I mean, you know, you look at plan nine from outer space and, yeah, he's not he's not Edgar G. Ulmer, you know. He doesn't know how to <laughs> use his limitations in in a movie like that. Um, but on the other hand, like, yeah, that cemetery set is very is sort of like it has an accidental power to it um, because like the the movie forces you to just like sit on this like six square feet of soundstage until un, and and does not let you out of it until you sort of have to pretend that you're in this zone of perpetual night. Um, it's, you know, it sort of pulls off this accidental trick, uh, but like, you know, while he, and I think yeah. take it out in trade, there are a million moments where he doesn't know how to match a shot, where he doesn't know how to compose an image, where he doesn't know how to like create an arresting composition. There are a million moments like that, but then in all of yeah. these movies, there are just like really weird visual ideas, really strange instincts, you know, to say nothing of his, his, the, like the ideas of the films, the themes, just mm -hmm. on a technical level, it's crazy the stuff he attempts in Glen or Glenda. And it's, cr you know, all the, all the dream sequence stuff, uh, the integration mm -hmm. of fantasy and reality in that film and multiple layers of, layers of narration. And in this movie, like, like the 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 truly like insane like Mobius strip editing style, and <laughs> it is it is ridiculous, yeah. And like it's yeah, wild, like yeah. what he's doing with color, like it's like it's I don't know what the strategy is. Like you can say it's a little tasteless, but my God, he's just going for this like assault of I mean, yeah. I mean it, it's it's visual. certainly like something yeah. right. Like in a world where there is so, and we said this last week, but like where there is so many technically competent films that just suck and feel generated by <laughs> yeah. AI even before yeah. they might actually be. Like, I can't help but look at something so just totally unique in the world of this, like, true outsider artist and, like, you know, not find something intriguing about it. And I think we mentioned it was, I think, Dave Kerr's review uh, last week because he was kind of a fan of Ed Wood, and he called him an, an unconscious avant-gardist where his movies may be filled with blunders, <laughs> but they are unusually creative and oddly expressive. Um, and I think that it was like just 
totally accurate and it made its way into you know movies that you could imagine someone else making and this would be so much more boring because like we've covered a, a decent amount of sort of like sexploitation and kind of nudie cutie films and I don't think I've ever seen one as strange as trying to also be like a love letter to noirs that he really loves them because we'll, yeah. we'll get into the basic premise here, but it, it stars, um, Michael Donovan O'Donnell as uh, detective Mac McGregor, this, uh, gap toothed mustached gumshoe private eye doing maniacal Herber. voiceover. <laughs> like, you know, sex is, uh, is always in need of my services, sometimes even in the daylight. And this is one of my case files. And, you know, he has like a cardboard sign in a bathroom for his phone number in his office. And the story oh, that, is that one moment. of him. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so that moment when he had the the cardboard like sign just done in marker, I was uh, because of the kind of, I guess, preconception that like Ed Woods has. I was curious if they were like, that's all they could muster on set that day. And so I had this kind of layer of already thinking that <laughs> that was funny to me. And then when it revealed that he was actually making the joke and he was in the bathroom and like he he fully like that was the joke <laughs> itself. I just thought it was I think it was something that only we could probably experience or at least I could experience if you guys didn't where you have this preconception of maybe some of his faults in his filmmaking. And so it's almost like you think that's the joke, but then he actually reveals that he wrote it with he wrote that in the story itself. Um, oh, totally. I don't know yeah. if you had that same idea. No, I did. Yeah, where that, I was like, oh, that, I saw that I was like, that's all he could afford. He, and then it's like, no, he's a sign. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. And like funny. that to me, that's why this movie is kind of the missing piece of the Edward puzzle, because the movie is constantly making its own cheapness part of the joke. Uh, not to get too far ahead <laughs> right. of ourselves, but like part of the plot is that this detective is. Uh, constantly going on these unnecessary like foreign trips and Edward will show you like he's he's gone to LAX and just shot footage of planes taking off and then he'll cut to like somebody like you know dressed in a beret in front of a poster that says France and yeah. like that's the that's the joke the joke is of course we didn't shoot there this is I a laughed cheap production. every time yeah 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 and to see and yeah. to see Edward yeah. like and it is have fun too. with that yeah yeah, and it is funny to watch, like, because the way he sets up the the French guy, he's just like a very stereotypical cliche French dude. He's just got like the beret. He's he's drunk walking in front of the sign, and it's just a just a poster with like in a in a black set. Like he doesn't even try to make it look like there's a like some type of wall put up that would be in an airport or anything like that. So it is it is very funny. Or even when he does the the later gag with uh, the same French guy, I think, where he's like wasted at the restaurant. And, um, the, uh, I think his girlfriend ends up getting mad at him. So he goes over, she goes over to the, to the detective, which is in the same set, which is very mm -hmm. funny. They just cut to this, the same table that the Frenchman was just at, but now yeah, it's the detective. in front of the same curtain and, and the detective and the detective is <laughs> yes. smoking in front of a no smoking sign that says France. Yeah. It's, Oh my God. It's so funny. I also yeah, think well, it's interesting that the detective has his office in the bathroom of the Brown Derby, which, I mean, in the movie Ed Wood, as well as in real life, the Brown Derby was this, you know, 
um, iconic Hollywood eatery where Ed Wood would often like have like try to raise money for his movies. He'd have lunches for investors, and you know, to him, this uh, this kid from the East Coast who came came west, like the Brown Derby, was symbolic of Hollywood glamour, and he liked to you know uh, spend as much time and money there as he could. Um, and I sort of like that the movie announces itself in those early scenes as this is a gutter production. You know, we are mm-hmm. in the bathroom of the Brown Derby. We are uh, at the <laughs> fence outside LAX. Yeah, well, and, and I like your point about how unnecessary the travelogue aspect is of the film, too, because it, he very well could just make the movie. He goes brothel <laughs> to brothel in porn, L.A. Really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like there, well, but uh, like it's just that there's no reason he needs to be traveling further, or that the girl would have even traveled further because uh, to to maybe get to the the basic story is that uh, the detective is investigating uh, a sort of like missing runaway daughter uh, of a sort of like straight laced wealthy couple, and the daughter is named Shirley, the uh, alter ego of Ed Wood when he was in drag. And they fear that Shirley is, uh, you know, who, who knows what she's up to. She's maybe have, living a liberated, perhaps criminal sex worker lifestyle of some kind. And so Mac McGregor is to the rescue to find out what's going to happen. But of course, he uses it as an excuse to just go on the father's uh, dime and travel around and go to all the various brothels and just kind of indulge himself. And that's definitely the most overtly comedic <laughs> stuff is just the detective antics oh, is, yeah. you know, him going on the case and just being girl. Girls, girls, girls. I really <laughs> love girls. You know, and just a montage of him voyeuristically like, spying on or hiring prostitutes and just all of the shots of him like mugging and like licking his lips and his eyes bulging like a cartoon wolf watching all of the various <laughs> sex core scenes, hiding behind bushes and dumpsters. And at one point, he just He's pulls out binoculars and shit. That giant bottle of scotch that he just pulls out that's like a giant, like fake check style <laughs> bottle of scotch. <laughs> Uh, he's just, you know, he's just a totally goofy character that, you know, the movie has a sense of humor about, but also does kind of have a little bit of, you know, kind of like a satirical progressive critique of a little bit where Edward is being like, you know, like this guy, you know, is, you know, a sort of cartoonishly awful depiction of what the uh, quote unquote, like male gaze might be in, in this case, which is, you know, for 1970, softcore porno you know you know a little bit more progressive than your average one i'd say well i was and then i think it's funny too though just to to have like uh the difference is there's also scenes where they'll just be talking about like him you know working on the case and they'll just splice in boobs and people dry humping ferociously which would be the way to say it ferociously these people when they're (laughs) dry humping in some of these scenes i'm like i don't need this does not look like pleasurable sex whatsoever it's very funny honestly um but one of my favorite just just as a a comedic moment was when i think it's when uh mr riley who's the guy that hires the the pi to find shirley um he says something like it cuts to them and he's just like i wonder what the detective's up to now Uh, like what clues that he's discovered and it just cuts to the detective right away with a boob just in his mouth full and 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 you just watch it for like 30 seconds and it's just the, the 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 hard cut to it is in my opinion absolutely hilarious so um and there's i believe there's the line that like sets that, it up is he says so he's hard. on a hot tip and then it cuts to him <laughs> that's the one right <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god, it's juvenile, but it's just so it's so funny. The, it's it's just the hard cut makes it so good. Yeah, as to the film sort of treatment of you know gender and masculinity, I mean, Ed Wood is a pretty like complicated guy, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, by all accounts, in his personal life, he had you know heterosexual appetites, and uh, he often he would often present himself as a sort of very masculine guy, but then he also had this other persona. He liked to go out and drag. He, he called himself Shirley. Um, you know, who knows how he might've identified now if indeed he would have identified as he, um, or, or, you know, if the idea of being gender fluid might not have, um, fully been available to him at the time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, in a lot of his, particularly his novels, but also some of these later movies, and and Glenn or Glenda, of course, um, you can see this fascination with like, um, yeah, masculine, like men being like overpowered. Um, you know, he's interested in the, uh, you know, he's interested in um, masculinity and femininity as these roles that can be played, and um, you know. Uh, the the sort of reversal of power of like when somebody who's hyper masculine is like yeah like domed by by women you know you can see you can see that in a movie that he was in mm-hmm. called the love feast that is that is very much about that and yeah mm-hmm. he see he sees the gender binary like as a sort of site of uh, dominance and humiliation often uh, I don't want to bring the conversation too down but. He wrote a novel uh, <laughs> called The Only House in Town that I've read that is not actually related to the movie of the same name. That <laughs> includes, I, I read it a year or two ago and I was quite shocked because it's quite unpleasant. It's got a lot of sexual violence in it. And there's this one scene involving um, the assault of a transgender sex worker. Um, mm. You know, very diff- very different tonally from this movie where where it's like, oh, okay, like... This this was this was a, definitely a site where you're working through some stuff like, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and yeah, I guess that's all kind of all I can say about it. Uh, but yeah, this was this was clearly a very yeah this was clearly a very vulnerable spot for him. And when we see Mac McGregor later in this movie, like you you know you see all the all the women like dominate him on the bed. Um, it's, yeah, it's in that part of Edward's brain. Yeah, well, and Ed Wood obviously also yeah. appears in the film as a character named Alicia as as a drag queen character. And it is a little bit of like a different, you know, there's been an interesting development since the kind of closeted shame of Glenn or Glenda a little bit where, you know, he's totally just confidently playing a drag queen um, character um, mm-hmm. in, in, in this. He's got the bright green dress and sort of like the bombshell blonde wig that he always wanted. Um, and he's sitting cross-legged on the garish like couch that he's on, clearly trying to act his ass off and, you know, talk about his relationship oh, yeah. with, with, with Shirley up against Mac McGregor. And in all of these scenes with the various drag queens or sex workers or, uh, you know, any kind of, you know, uh, character that Ed Wood clearly, you know, probably knew in his real life and does have some kind of, you know, uh, sympathy for, uh, the gumshoe private eye is just like beating the absolute shit out of them. And it's, you know, and he's doing it in a way that he thinks he's Mm -hmm. being, you know, kind of funny, but it, 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 every single time it happened, it did actually create a little bit of a, you know, um, an interesting contradictory effect where like you're having a lot of fun watching this guy make the, you know, the, the big bulging eyes looking at, you know, all the various breasts that just 
appear randomly on the screen sometimes. And, you know, he he's doing some funny antics. And then you'll get that moment like when he that huge smash zoom on him just like ripping Ed Wood's wig off and just seeing Ed Wood's like shocked, hurt face um, yeah. that it just like kind of holds mm-hmm. on in that moment. And, you know, it, it, it does sort of complicate this in an, in an interesting way that I, I did kind of find effective and a little bit more subversive because, you know, again, this like, this is something that is very specific and personal to Ed Wood. It's something that is totally in line with his stylistic quirks and his sort of thematic interests. And it did sort of turn the movie into more of like an intentional satire of the two genres that we've been talking about in a kind of way that is, you know, not completely different than the something John Waters might do or something Doris Wishman might do. And, you know, and it really does spice up an otherwise kind of occasionally dull softcore porn film with all of his obsessions. Cause you have the old Hollywood genre movie aspect with all of the noir stuff you have his own sort of like dingy la you know personality and and humor that he has and as we've been talking about the sort of vaguely sort of like sexually progressive um you know view of some of these characters and yeah so i i don't know i i found that aspect really interesting and sort of did clarify a little bit for me the sort of breakdown editing of it like who knows maybe he was just making random choices maybe he was like you know some of these characters are sort of hippie-ish so maybe it'll give it a psychedelic rapid cut kind of strangeness to it or something but like you know it, it is funny at a certain point how often just a random part of the movie will just appear in the middle of like another scene uh, and it'll just repeat yeah. certain shots like <laughs> yeah. how many times do we go back to that woman on the couch doing like the praying hands with her breasts out. I actually lost track. I tried keeping track early on and I was like, I don't, I don't remember how many times we did this. Yeah. 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 He also, he also does these, um, interesting things and he does it a few times in this movie actually. And he did it in, it might've been even both plan nine and, uh, uh, Glenn or Glenda where he splices in those like thunder lightning strikes that you would see in, you know, Dracula or Frankenstein or something like I that. I love those. And those are those are a warm bath well. to me. Yeah. <laughs> but in Yo, a way yeah, that totally. that shot you mentioned of the woman on the couch like fills that function of the of the thunder and lightning. You know, it's this <laughs> it's this it's this yeah. thing that he yeah. cuts That's to like, when he doesn't know what else to cut to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is funny. He like in this he does it in the the violent moments where it's like the lightning strikes and then in the the moments where he it's almost like he thinks that whatever he's showing you in the plotting is a little bit dull so he just splices in like boobs and dry humping again. Yeah. Um, and he and he does both and it's but both of them Which is funny though because I don't know about you guys did you guys not find that the um, actual softcore elements were maybe like the more dull? I thought everything around them was like a little bit more lively and kind of had his personality to yeah, him. Even them, even the scenes of the girls lounging like the house decor was bizarre and I kind of liked hanging out in the weird like you know, uh, the, the the gold skull next to the rotary phone, the giant fuzzy red carpeted staircase and all of the like we the bearded guy who shows up and goes speaking of will mention Mulholland Drive, the guy who's like, this must be the place. I was like that. He almost delivers it in like yeah. that weird. Uh, this is the girl <laughs> voice from Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I thought that like. Strangely enough, the actual pornography and, you know, this is what will join a, a, a line of episodes where we have actually judged the pornographic skills of filmmakers who have put it into their films, including Andy Milligan, 
who did it on Seeds, Doris Wishman, obviously, on Bad Girls Go to Hell, and Hisayasu Sato on Celluloid Nightmare. You know, we've, we have judged their porno chops, and I would put Ed Wood... Uh, kind of on maybe the lower end of those filmmakers. And t- uh, d- but maybe I'm also judging him based I've, on the diversity of his personal fetishes that we know. I kind of expected them to make their way more into the sex scenes of the film, but a lot of them are pretty just standard and maybe it's out of obligation to the market. Um, but it's a lot of just like topless walking around occasionally, like a butt cheek is grabbed, you know, it's not particularly inventive. Um, you know, there, there's a brief shot yeah. of like a mechanical yeah. horse ride. I, Every single one, I think, in this, like, is mostly just comedic, it it seems. And it's hard to say. Half of them seem on purposely comedic, the way that he directs them. I mean, you have the P.I. doing the, like, Looney Tunes dog thing and and all of that. Um, And then even, like I was mentioning before, the dry humping itself is very uh, strange looking. Like, it doesn't seem, like, natural. (laughs) It, it, It feels... Uh, performative in a weird way itself. And so um, there, I, I found like every single sexual scene in this to be, you know, it's softcore porn, but for me it was almost just comedy, like the whole time. It, it is it is weird because it's not like, uh, like if you're just judging it on like, what, what was that one that we that we watched? Maybe it was uh, you, Will, that brought it on, the uh, the horror porno. Oh, uh, yeah, Widow yeah, Blue. Widow like Blue, years ago. yeah. Widow blue. Yeah. Like there's just, I mean, you know, we have dick slicings and like whatever <laughs> else in that. I mean, granted, that's not what Ed Wood is really going for here, but, um, yeah, most of his sexual stuff is comedic in this. And I found that to be interesting. Um, and also I, I gotta say, cause we were talking about how there's like two scenes that really take more of a serious, uh, tone. And that's the, the scene with, with Ed Wood, um, at least by like the second half of it. And then the scene before it too, with <laughs> oddly enough, a character named sleazy Maisie Rumpledink. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and she's played by like Nona a Carver. drug addict, a hooker. Yes. Yes. And you know, when he walks in and just barges in really, uh, he's immediately like telling them what to do. He kicks the, the client out. Um, he, he's threatening to take her drugs away. Uh, she's saying like that she's poor and she doesn't have any other, you know, hits to take. And, yeah, it's and just it's really just, sad. Like actually. It's, a, it's actually a lot more serious and sad than the rest of the film. It's probably the only scene that didn't make me, you know, kind of chuckle in some way. Um, you didn't like her no yeah. credit, uh, uh, yeah. misspelled cardboard sign. Yeah, I mean, when, when my when uh, P- yeah. I remember when Peter Kaplowski saw this movie, he he told me like it's like Ed Wood is it's it's like Ed Wood's inherent vice, and I think you see that in these scenes where like the movie is you know it follows this detective as he's going through this like L.A. tapestry, and I mean you gotta hand it to Ed Wood that he's willing to throw in sort of. The, the the odd range of tones that he does, you know, in, incorporating a scene like that sleazy, mazy, rumpledink scene where, like, in the midst of all this, like, kind of cheerful squalor, he says, oh, yeah, but there's also squalor, squalor, and you're going to linger in that for a little bit. Like, that's a yeah. deliberate choice, mm-hmm. and I think it's, like, kind of kind of an amazing one. Yeah, I mean, that was the choice that he makes yeah. that does there, remind I, me the most of uh, Doris Wishman when we did our Doris Wishman episode because her films obviously mm. also use these kind of strange editing patterns and sometimes also did these weird cuts to just like plants in the room or, you know, thing, various things. But it was all about, you know, the turning the characters who would be the site of pornographic interest for the male audience who would show up 
you know, to actually buy a ticket to a film like this and overtly turning them into the protagonist in a story where they are kind of, they are treated cruelly or they are victims or actual sort of domestic disputes happen in some of her films. And that is definitely like the, the few moments that that popped up, like it's, it's overtly confrontational, you know, like if you're trying to like wank off in one of yeah. the 1970s movie theaters, it's hopefully not <laughs> to the scene of the detective, you know, like belittling this like hair, old heroin addict woman trying to make it do, you know, like it's just kind of sad. Yeah. And he has, I'm pretty sure the scene, oh no, he does. It, I, I, I was going to say the scene directly after that is the Alicia scene, but he does have a little sequence. I think that's actually where he says the hot tip line and then does the boob gag and then goes to Alicia. So he, he gives you a little bit of a, of a break before the next kind of sad scene that he puts in there. I would definitely agree with you, though, that the erotic elements are the most um, or the least interesting parts of the movie. I mean, I think I think you'll all agree mm-hmm. that the kind of pool scene is kind of where the movie grinds to a crawl, right? Yeah, it's a little long. Yeah, because they do this. It's it's interesting that he's like, we, we you know, we have the initial pool scene and you're like, OK, so there's the pool scene. And then he does another pool. Scene We're coming back to the pool it. table. And, 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 <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's like consecutive one after the other, and it's strange that it's like it, it, he couldn't come up with like another set or something like that. I'm not sure. Basically, the first one is a lesbian pool table scene, and then the second one is with the men involved, and so it's just like you get both. I guess is, yeah. it was his idea. I'm not sure. Yeah, it needed, it needed less of that, and it needed more of the long. moments where, like, Mac is poking his head through, like, that closet cart and, like, smiling and, you know, licking his lips, and he's looking at the lady in lingerie, and then she turns around, <laughs> and it's Ed Wood! Yeah. And oh, <laughs> love that. Yeah. Great moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed that, I, well, And I thought that he would um, be more into I that, too, considering how much he calls himself a chaser in the film. I think he says it, like, three or four times, and I was you like, know, there's. There's there's an interesting passage in, you know, I've read several of Ed Wood's novels and in, I think, uh, uh, Let Me Die in Drag, you know, or it's it it's all about this, like, yeah, this this serial killer who's, you know, on the, uh, or, you know, waiting for the electric chair and he's delivering his full confession of being a transvestite serial killer. And um, he, there's this chapter, like chapter two or three, very early on where he's in drag in the bathroom of like, just a you know a truck stop bathroom or something, and the the old man pops who's run it who's running the place is like clearly like so into him in drag, and you know it's this kind of erotic this erotic seduction scene that's just like you know the narrator in the bathroom pretending to be a woman and like kind of playing you know playing with this old old um, gas station attendant's feelings. And, you know, you read that and you th- and you then you see that scene and take it out in trade. And it's like Edward really genuinely got off on the idea of being mistaken for a woman. And, um, I, yeah, interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know anything else to say except that that's fascinating and it runs through his movies. And it well, how many compl- books did he write? Because it was like because I, I, oh, I did like a brief look at some of these titles. It's like Black Lace Drag. Uh, the Parisian passions, uh, drag trade, devil oh, girls, wow. death of a transvestite, nighttime les, the perverts, raped in the grass. I don't know about that one, Ed. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, young, the- black, and gay. The hell chicks. <laughs> the gay underworld. Like he, the, like this was his whole sixties, right? Uh, yeah, from the mid sixties to basically close to the end of his life when he was finally fired, he worked. He paid the bills as a writer for a company called Pendulum Publications, which dealt in you know dirty books. And he he was supposedly a you know extremely fast like world champion class typist, and he would just bang out these books. You know, uh, some of them you can kind of feel like when you get to page 100, you can feel it's like, oh, yeah, he's just like typing until he gets to page 125. And so they're the, you know, he does have a little bit of a brute writing structure, I will say when I because I I did read Hollywood Rat Race in prep for our big episode, which is a which is a great book. And it's like a half Hollywood how to book for the aspiring actors and writers and directors who are thinking about making the move to L.A. But it's also like half autobiograph or biography, like by accident, because he's telling you about his version of tips and how he made it in, you know, and he, you know, to his section of Hollywood and you definitely could feel in the writing. Yeah, like you would say that there are things so like there are things so specific that you're like, he obviously lived through this. Yeah. Like when, when, <laughs> when, no when he was giving tips it. on how to sneak into Griffith park at night, so you don't have to pay rent. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, you know, like that's, <laughs> he did that. that. That's something you only know if you actually had to do that, which is also wonderful and gives you some, you know, some, some yeah. detail and color about his life. Um, which gets a little bit sadder when you get kind of to the, to the end of it, which is from what I understand, it's in this period. Like this is when he was a bit of like a raging alcoholic at this point. Right and he, he was just yeah, going to totally. die a couple of years later. Yeah, there, by the way, there's another bit of advice in that book I like. He mentions that, you know, it's actually not that bad to sleep on a bench in the park, you know? Just yeah. bring a blanket. And, and that's great <laughs> That's great advice for the aspiring Hollywood professional. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Will, and, <laughs> and, awesome. and I was just curious, because reading that book, there was one chapter that actually really did strike me in, in the context of this conversation, because it didn't apply so much to last week's episode. But there there is this... Um, kind of incredible chapter where he is describing in pretty, you know, gruesome detail at times, like what various sleazy producers would do to, uh, you know, young beauty queens from the Midwest who are trying to make their way and, you know, the, and they're going to get used for every dollar and they're going to get their bodies used and they're going to be sent back home broke. And he kind of had this element to him where, you know, he was, he had an aversion, I'll say, to the nudie cutie, like exploitation market. And he kind of seemed like in the book in 1965 anyway, that he considered it quite gross and predatory and that, you know, it was, you know, the only thing that intrigued him even slightly was the fetish aspect of it, which was, you know, that the producers would have the girls take their clothes off. But the only reason that excited him is because, well, there's a part in it where he literally says, and because the guys would then put on their clothes and then ask them to put their heels back on and step on them. And he was like, this isn't just like my fetish, like every major Hollywood actor does this. And uh, I can't name who they are in case they sue me. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine, too, that like awesome. Like, you know, he he was a guy who was living in kind of the, you know, lower middle class or lower of the Hollywood entertainment industry. So I'm sure like, you know, whether it was the nudie cutie genre or whatever, I'm sure he probably like saw a lot of that or like heard about a lot of it. You know, he would have rubbed shoulders with a lot of unethical producers. Mm. So, I mean, I'm the the apocalyptic vision that he paints in that chapter um, you know, I, I don't doubt that it's true. I don't doubt that he had that he saw that. 
Yeah, no, it's it's just interesting to to read that, and then five years later, we're talking yeah. about his return to film. Because how long had it been since he had made a film? Was it nineteen like fifty nine or nineteen sixty? Yeah, nineteen sixty. He made the Sinister Urge, which, by the way, right. uh, is is well, I mean, it's it's an exploitation film. It's like you know, it's there to titillate the audience, sort of. But it's about like two vice cops who are trying to crack a pornography ring, you know, and it's it's hmm. at least allegedly very anti pornography. Um, but of course, like the whole exploitation market that the, the low, low level exploitation market that he was working in, in the 1950s, um, would migrate to sex films basically like, you know, mm-hmm. that's where the, you know, if, uh, the, the pe- people, even somebody like Samuel Arkoff who ran American international pictures, which was, you know, where Roger Corman made all of his films, Samuel Arkoff was quoted as saying, look, I didn't take Ed Wood seriously. He was a loser, you know, and that's how Ed Wood was regarded. So of course he, of course he ended up, you know, in, in pornography. That was kind of the only place for him. Yeah. I just find that so interesting that he was very against it. And then it was like, it became the only way for him to, you know, make money near the end of almost desperation. It's a little, it's a little sad, but, but he did also, I mean, it does, I think come through in the film that he is less interested in the pornography than he is in the weirdo genre film. He kind of gets to make around it as we've said, but yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Um, it's just a, a, an interesting, um, thing I picked up on and it's I I don't I haven't seen enough from this era to know if this is just a common thing but I found it interesting that he used um almost like organ rock instrumentals for the sex scenes instead of what I always thought back in this day was more like funky bass lines (laughs) and stuff like that um it's it's it kind of gives this like strange almost over-the-top energy to some of the scenes where you have like sporadic rock drums and, and organ playing and then some like slightly distorted guitar in the background and they're like soloing out and everything. Um, he kind of has a similar thing when we'll, we'll talk about it, but with only house in town where he uses like uh, big band jazz mm-hmm. things instead of what you would think is a more, I don't know, sexual kind of music. And so it's, I was it's, partial uh, to all the uh, xylophone, a different energy uh, uh, hits <laughs> yeah, in totally. this one. I was like, where did they, where did they come from? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with you diving into some of this stuff, um, like, have you seen any other, uh, like sexploitation or, or softcore comedies, whatever horrors, um, that have the same kind of, uh, music? Cause I've just, I don't think I've ever seen this, these two things put together. I mean, probably not in quite the same way, uh, probably not quite as uh, the same way that like Ed Wood does it. Um, I mean, I mean, (laughs) it's got a different energy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, it's funny. The, the only, uh, um, take it out in trade obviously has its boring parts, but like, I would still put it up against like, Mm -hmm. he's not, he's maybe not as good as Russ Meyer, but like, I'd put it up against like 80% of nudie cuties from the sixties. And I would say it's less boring than those. Which you know have have uh, you know an mm-hmm. even an even dumber sense of humor and like you know like however long the camera just grinds during the pool sequence in the middle of this movie I mean good God like just just you know <laughs> <laughs> like yeah the, the, I I do yeah. think this the is only, one of the better I will ones. say I. I almost forgot about this part because I, I agree. I think that that pool sequence goes on way too long and it's pretty boring for the most part. But one thing I did like was when 
one of the guys and the girl is, are trying to have sex on the table and the one guy is just try, still trying to play pool over top of them <laughs> <laughs> or something. I got kind of a kick out of that. Uh, but yeah, that, that sequence definitely goes on a little too long. Yeah, well, I also, I do like, like, after the pool scene, I kind of do like how he does wrap things up here, where, you know, Shirley does kind of get this idea. She starts hearing through the sort of uh, really interestingly depicted, like, web of communication that all of these sex workers have with one another, where they all call and kind of, like, warn one another about people are looking for them. And I do like how this translates into, like, you know, Ed Wood calling up Shirley and being like that gumshoe private eye is coming for you. And she, and you know, you better watch out. And it turns into like the scene where you have like what appears to be like a, a gender fluid or transgender couple, like dressed in like opposing sort of domestic gender role dynamics, like kind of in the kitchen, which then turns into like an extended scene of McGregor sleeping, uh, with, uh, one of Shirley's friends, but it's, it is this sort of like comedic thing where he's like snoring and like talking in his sleep while she's like trying to wake him up with like her naked body and he's getting you know he's getting distracted on his way to Shirley and he's you know running into all of these various characters in this in this underworld and it it all results in this bit where they McGregor actually does make his way to the brothel called Madam Penny's where all of the girls where frequently it's where all these sort of, you know, porno sequences have been happening and where we've been kind of cutting back to frequently over the course Mm. of the film. And there is this element where like the girls have to kind of team up and stick together. And it's just like, you know, he's prying into my business. This is also your business. You know, this is, this is trouble with the fuzz. The gumshoes are coming for us all. And it includes, you know, the, the bit where they like cartoonishly like lean in and like whisper the plan that they're going to do. And you know, when McGregor finally does make his way yeah. in, it's in this thing where as will kind of pointed out already, he's like tied up and undressed and kind of, you know, it starts off as like this goofy little, what appears like a pillow fight scuffle of some kind and then like a bondage orgy. And then <laughs> yeah. it turns into like them actually kind of tying him up and like torturing him a little bit and humiliating him in his underwear and Whipping taping, him. taping his mouth. And I do like the bit when she pulls the tape off his mouth and his mustache hairs are like coming out and everything like that. Like the girls do, as Will was saying, like they, they really do dominate the really abusive cartoonishly abusive detective who is trying to like hunt down these sex workers. Yeah. Even, yeah. And and he also he like he fleshes this out by just having, you know, it, it, it just it goes on. These scenes go on for longer than they probably should. But it is because it's also supposed to be pornographic. Um, but he's he still tries to kind of throw in some comedy in there. Like he does a lot of ADR in this sequence. And like one like line is when he's saying stuff like uh, or the, one of the girls is like, now that's what I call titillating. Like all that kind <laughs> of just corny porn jokes, I guess. And it's obviously 80 yard and, uh, there is like actually a charm kind of built into it. Um, but in the middle of this, cause this right now, it's just like the group of girls kind of doing the, the work for Shirley. And then, uh, Shirley eventually switches with one of them so that she can have like a, an actual moment with the detective. But before that they have this funny, uh, exchange where the they switch and the one girl's like I uh or Shirley's like I hope you didn't kill him and she goes what will we do with the body and it's just a simple shrug and they just move on to the next scene mm-hmm. and it, the the timing of it is actually really funny and uh it's it's a decent gag um 
And then it goes on to like them talking about the plan that we'll get with the conclusion. But I thought that that was actually a decently well-written gag by Wood there. Mm-hmm. But it, it does uh, get resolved when uh, the detective says, well, I'm not just hounding you because, you know, you're you know, I, I don't like that you are a sexually liberated woman. I'm just here on behalf of your parents to make sure that, you know, you're all right. And everything <laughs> just gets kind of, you know, very quickly. She's just like, oh. Well, I mean, that that's OK. And, and I, I do really like the line. And it does feel like a line that Ed would would write, which is you make your living your way. I make mine the only way like I know how to. And, you know, and it, it is very much, a mm-hmm. you know, no shame to anyone. I'm a goofy womanizing detective and you're, you know, an, an attractive woman just doing your thing. Um Although it does result in a hilarious gag and I love where she's like whole... patting him on the belly and then taking uh, her back home to her parents where she's just like, I'm going to live the life that I want. And she just gets like naked in front of her parents and the parents refuse to pay him because they were like, hey, <laughs> we wanted you to like bring our daughter back and like fix her, you know, not just like let her be like a crazy sexual being. And he just like grabs the daughter and runs out the door. He's just like, cause you're not going to pay me. I guess I'll take it out in train. (laughs) He's just going to fuck their daughter for payment. This is the ending that Paul Schrader's hardcore should have had. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Didn't have the balls. Yeah. Oh my god, it's hilarious. Like I also think that the running gag of him just using Mr. Riley's money for brothels the entire time is really funny. Like this the whole time he's under the the understanding he doesn't have to pay for any of this. It's just I don't know, for him to keep doing it. He's like, I'm going to go to Canada. I'm going to go to Greece. I'm going to go to France. Yeah, the brief shot of Air <laughs> the, Canada the gave me a little bit funny. of a, a panic attack just seeing that. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, and that that oh, I think is the, the the end of take it out in trade. So pivoting, I think, towards the reductive uh, rating round. Um, uh, this one uh, ended up getting like a like a bit of a solid three for me. Like uh, like again, I think that this is um, you know it's yeah. it, 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 it's a strange and satirical like nudie cutie sexploitation movie with again the the premise of the kind of silly uh you know sort of noir elements that ed wood very much loved in his old hollywood movies and it's given many of his you know his his personal style quirks it's got the stilted sort of genre dialogue that you know characters say to one there i do like the bit with the the when the you know the the private detective actually converses and makes the deal with the parents it's like a conversation you've heard in like a hundred movies of just like you know shame it's such a beautiful girl and Mm -hmm. he's like i require payment up front and the payment after the job is done and you know and they're like we are the height of elite society we've got the money Uh, but no police no publicity i was like edward just clearly relishing being able to write a kind of scene he's seen in a movie before um but you've also got like the cheap strange set decor the psychedelic like nonsense editing pattern of of the whole thing and yeah i i ended up enjoying this and despite the fact that i figured with ed wood being a more sort of like openly fetishistic kind of dude especially in his writing that his soft core sequences might you know get a little bit um more of that uh in them but yeah d- despite that he's very clearly having fun like spicing up uh, you know, a soft core film with his, you know, very unique uh, obsessions 
Um, and there's very, very, you know, <laughs> many deliberate gags that are, you know, well done, really satirizing this horrible, awful detective just spying on the girls and uh, violent, uh, violently attacking uh, like Ed himself in drag. Um, and, and, it's, it, and to include moments like that, it really just is like very clearly he's doing something interesting and intentional and it's quite pointed um, and, and, and sad and definitely mm-hmm. did remind me what I like about uh, specifically Doris Wishman who made movies like him in this period for the exploitation market for horny people to jack off to but you know was clearly playful enough too much pain involved as well uh, yeah, yeah I mean he has it's a real portrait of of LA and the people he kind of knows yeah. in LA and the real places as Will was saying one of them is an actual place that he hung out in and so it's like you know he wanted to include the a little bit of realistic detail um, in there and it's for the same purpose where it's a it's a punishing scene you know that kind of makes you think about you know the kinds of movies that you're putting on when you watch something like this and so yeah i think that there's you know there's there's definitely some value here yeah yeah i'm also gonna give it a three um it's it's like a part of a a new genre i feel like will has introduced us to which is like pornos that are hard to jerk off to (laughs) uh, my favorite genre uh, (laughs) just you know it's yeah yeah keep bringing them it's a lot of fun (laughs) Um, yeah, I think, I think that this is uh, for me, honestly, mostly, uh, it's a, it's a comedy movie. I honestly was laughing throughout this, uh, unexpectedly. I think, I think I might even like this oddly enough more than plan nine, uh, just because I get more entertainment out of it. I think, I think it is truly funnier, um, whether some of it is intentional and some of it isn't, but a, a lot of this, when I was watching it and laughing, I, for the most part, thought it was intentional on Edward's part. So um, a lot of the, the gags kind of got me, even though some of them obviously are a little dated and juvenile, but, um, uh, I don't know. He's, he, he's a, he's kind of charming, uh, in, in, at times. So, um, yeah. And all the, like, the sporadic editing, the, the, those jump cuts from like another one was, uh, that we didn't mention was when they were like, I wonder what Shirley's doing. And then they just cut to her, like riding a saddle <laughs> at, a, <laughs> at a crazy speed. Um, it's just like, there, there's these things that, you know, he's, he's putting it into the, the porno because it's supposed to be a porno. So you have to have naked people and, and all that, but it, it always ends up being more comedic than sexy. And I think that that was endlessly entertaining for me. So, um, yeah, three out of five. I nice. thought it was fun for you. Will. Yeah. I mean, when, um, when Edward was making these movies, it's not like he was the worst director of all time yet. You know, he wasn't, uh, he had, mm-hmm. he had not yet become Tommy Wiseau or like put in, put in that box. So, um, yeah, seeing this movie, it's just interesting to see a movie that I think like on its own terms kind of works. And, um, yeah, I think it harnesses sort of, a lot of what's what was interesting and unique about his personality. So, you know, with with the understanding that all of these movies are five stars for me, I'm gonna give this one a four. <laughs> <laughs> just 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 to kind of play by the rules yeah. and like you know be reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, that'll uh, wrap it up for take it out and trade, and we are about to get fucking weird. Uh, we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about uh, a, you know, you, anyone who thought that this was a step too far for them. We, An orgy. We are going to, I don't know, I don't even know how to structure the conversation around this one. So I'm very excited. Um, we are going to talk about the only house in town. So you'll want to stick around. I couldn't find a trailer. So we're going to do another Jackie Moon special. 
Will Sloan, Ed Wood, Accent on the Wood, baby. Mmm, the Sleezoids Podcast, the only house in town. You know what it is, keep it sleazy, baby. Uh. Keep it sleazy, keep it sleazy, keep it sleazy. Hit it, Josh. All right, we are back, and we are talking the only house in town. The 1971 American softcore, uh, it's deemed a horror porn, um, which I, <laughs> I, I, so. I kind of guess that it, that, it, that it is. Maybe it, the first like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a, uh, 50 minute unfinished, uh, 16 millimeter porno film. Uh, so that was for a long time because of the title, uh, suggested as based on Ed Wood's book, The Only House in Town, that Will was saying, but, uh, and maybe Will can clarify, this apparently has nothing to do with that book, and that book was actually adapted into a film in the same year <laughs> called Necromania, which is actually that, like that closer to the correct. plot of the book. Is that true? That okay. Is, yeah, that is very correct, and it's it's baffling, and um, yeah. Well, it's confusing I, go, because go they came out the same year too. Like that made it yeah. much more like I, when I, I like at one point I actually got Necromania thinking, oh, this must be the same movie because it came out the same year. It's based on the same book, but no, it's a different movie. And mm-hmm. what's we're, actually you mentioned unfinished. Uh, it does appear to be unfinished this movie, but it was released. This movie played all over the country, um, often on the lower half of double bills. You know, just in like storefront porn theaters and that sort of thing. There are, you know, if you check newspaper archives, there are ads for it, you know, play dates from coast to coast. Which, oddly, Take It Out in Trade was not released. Um, it, it, it was not picked up for any sort of distribution. This movie, The Only House in Town, was a production of the film unit of Pendulum Publications, you know, the, ah. the book company that Ed Wood... Uh, wrote for and uh, they also paid for Necromania which was the book the the movie that was actually an adaptation of the book The Only House in Town interesting now how does just briefly up front how does like what explain Necromania to me what is the book actually I guess is the better what is the book (laughs) well um, I'll I'll start I'll start with the movie actually Necromania um, is uh, that is closer to being a horror porn film. Although really it is, ju- it is really, it is a porno with some sort of like horror aesthetics. Uh, Necromania w- is the story of a couple who are, uh, experiencing a rough patch in their marriage, uh, played by Rick Lutz and Renee Bond. They arrive at the, um, sanitarium would be the wrong word. They arrive at this, uh, spooky house, which if you watch the movie, it's actually just like a house, but they arrive at the spooky house of Madam heels, <laughs> who is this mystical sexual healer. And she, she will solve, um, the, the guy's, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction. And, uh, you know, as the movie goes okay. along, it's a little, it's a little bit under an hour long. The couple end up in various, you know, sexual configurations that are not necessarily with each other. And it climaxes with a sort of like seance like uh, happening in, with, you know, Ma- Madame Heels is in her coffin. I, look, what you need to know is the big sex scene at the end <laughs> takes place in a coffin, which okay. it was appar- apparently a coffin that Ed borrowed from his good friend Criswell. And uh, what you also need to know about that movie is. Um, it's got like, okay, the girl's name is Shirley as per usual. And it's got a lot of like, you know, just like kind of horror stuff in it, you know, like, uh, 
yeah, coffins and caskets and uh, knickknacks and stuff, but all on a kind of like I think I think the budget was seven thousand dollars, and most of that went to the film stock. Wow. So, uh, and and as threadbare as that movie is, it is still a world beyond what the only house in town is. Yeah, well, because I mean, this was the thing that kind of blew me away <laughs> because I got to be honest, I was watching this and I kind of went, I'm not sure that I know what's happening. And I had to mm-hmm. go back and find uh, Ed, <laughs> like Ed Wood's <laughs> like own review of the movie to actually yes. get an idea of like what it was supposed to be about. And because listen, he describes it as the only house in town is about lust, rape, crime, hate, sex, love, money, death, blood, lesbian orgies, whores, bootleggers, and ghosts. It is also the story of a house and what that house does to people's minds. And reading that, I was like, yeah, yeah, sort. Yeah, I th- a, a little bit, I, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, Edward wrote that review under a pseudonym. In an issue of a magazine called Wild Screen Reviews, which I have to assume was a pendulum publication. And I don't know if he wrote it before the movie was made or what, but um, every uh, the, the copy, the bootleg copies that you can get of the only house in town. Um, and in fact, the letterbox description also has has this statement that. Wood's biographer, Rudolph Gray, made. He said, Wood evidently began as director, but was replaced by producer-cameraman Saul Resnick. In his resume, Wood takes screenplay credit. Ushi Degar did not remember shooting this 1970 one-day wonder, although she has <laughs> extensive dialogue. So, uh, so I don't know what to make of that. Um, <laughs> I think, you know... Uh, Hal Guthu, the other cinematographer, says that Ed Wood directed this movie. Um, certainly, what we what we what we see of the plot and what we can glean of the ambiance suggests. Like, I don't know if Saul Resnick sort of took it over in post production or whatever post production was. It looks to me like Ed Wood shot a day of footage, and one of the money men said, "Good enough." Or, you know, and, and just put it out, you know, they were like a little bit of Ushi Degard got naked. <laughs> you saw her breasts a lot today. I feel like that, you know, yeah. that's good enough. Yeah. That, that's right. We can we can make something that's out of a that. porno. Put it on the screen. Well, and, and this is correct me if I'm wrong here, too. Well, this is one of the ones that was also alongside Take It Out and Trade. They were both it was lost for the longest time. Right. This didn't come out until like the mid 2010s or something. That's right. Like all of his later porno movies were lost for some variety of time. I think Necromania was found first. There's an article in, of all places, The New Yorker about the discovery of Necromania that you can uh, uh, look up. Yeah, I think <laughs> who, Rudolph, who was on that beat? <laughs> I, I know it's it's amazing. Um, the Young Marrieds was the other one he made that was discovered in the 2000s. This movie, I don't know what the story of its discovery was, but I just know that for years and years. You'd read about this movie. For years and years, it seemed like this movie might not actually exist. It felt like, um, is this just an <laughs> alternate version of Necromania? There was a trailer that I saw on a Something Weird video, like porno trailer compilation, that had some footage from this movie. And then all of a sudden in the mid-2000s, this, this movie just unceremoniously showed, started showing up on like bootleg DVDRs and on the internet. So somebody had a copy, somebody put it out there, and now it's very now it's or now it's pretty easy to find, and the fact that there was sort of no the fact that there's sort of no fanfare about its rediscovery, as kind of complements the fact that you don't 
it's a movie that feels unfinished. It's a movie that feels like when I watched it, it feels like haunted. Like yeah. it, it feels, yeah, I it, it agree feels a little, well, I, I'll way. say I agree a little bit. I agree for probably yeah, no, agree. the opening, like 20 minutes or so specifically, mm-hmm. because I, I, I will say that like when I read what Ed Wood supposedly wrote about his own movie and what the movie was about, I kind of understood it in the, in the opening stuff because it, the opening scene of this, cause we'll, we'll have to get into it, but like, it is like 50 minutes and the opening 20 minutes or so is like one kind of extended set piece. And then the remaining kind of like half hour, 35 minutes or so are a bunch of vignettes uh, starring Ushi Degard, the, you know, sort of sexploitation uh, actress who I think was in a lot of like Russ Meyer films. And she was in some of the Ilsa films as well. I think she we, we mentioned her once because I think she was in one of the sketches in Kentucky Fried movie. Um, and yes. uh, yeah. but 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 like right away in the opening of this this is like the only thing I've ever seen of Ed Wood trying to do like a more of like a modern horror angle because his vision of horror very much reminded me what I liked about the recent like Rob zombie monsters that he has a very like ghouls and goblins and fog and cemeteries, very old school affection for like cheap, uh, atmospheric Dracula era horror. And I very much liked that aspect every time he's tried to pastiche it in some of his early films. And in this one, you have something, and I think, Will, you might have mentioned this too, that it it has more of that like modern, like Manson paranoia anxiety where like a bunch of like a gang of like maybe hippie murderers like break into an apartment complex and they literally just start chasing a screaming and crying woman around and like grabbing her in this like completely run down paint chipped uh, building and then basically just start like an explicit gang rape that turns into an orgy. And this is like the opening like 20 minutes of the movie. And this is the stuff where I went, I don't know what this is, but it is very like off putting. Right. And and by the way, folks, I'm I'm yeah, there's I'm, a night. And by the way, folks, I'm very sorry about that, that that's how the movie opens. I mean, uh, obviously matters of sexual assault, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what, what, what I'll just say is like it's it's not as difficult to watch as it sounds. Mm. Him starting out, too, with this kind of like creepy music, they kind of uh, slowly get into the building before they start chasing her and everything and they surround her. And it is strange to watch the scene go from the kind of, I guess, the gang rape to just the, like, just an orgy. And, and it's, it, it kind of just happens at one point. It, and it's a, it's a very strange feeling because he goes from like that, he's kind of engaging in that, like you said, more more modern horror. It's, it's, it's honestly kind of terrifying compared to what you've seen Ed Wood do before. And then he goes back into his more like fun loving, just, people smiling and laughing about having sex with each other. And but still again, with like a really the, bizarre instrumentation um, changes to like big jazz, but still with like a really bizarre vibe to it. Right. Because like for me, this opening orgy sequence, cause talk about oh, yeah. like sequences that you, you know, are just not attractive in kind of any way. The way that he shoots this is it's like, whether by limitations yeah. or whatever reasons, it basically just is like a mass of bodies, just all conjoining and rubbing. And it honestly <laughs> reminded me more of like the orgy from like society 
where I yeah. like just the the handheld camera oh, movement, totally. the like flat, ugly lighting to it that doesn't make anyone look particularly good, even though obviously there are some attractive people in the the pile. The tinny like onset sound that you can barely hear except for occasionally like crew members like shouting at them, which is also not attractive and doesn't make it seem like a spontaneous sequence. It just makes it feel like there's a weird power dynamic that you're watching and all of this, especially the kind of like weird ethereal soundtrack, it does make it to Will's point seem like you're watching like a lost snuff film or something. It's just a, it's a bizarre vibe that I haven't seen yeah. much from anyone, let alone Ed Wood. And so I don't know, it was, there was something just really dark about this opening that I, I did kind of find interesting, even if I don't know how much of it was what was intended and what was like, they shot some stuff and they just threw together what they could in a way. I mean, the dreamlike quality yeah, of like Ed Wood's movies is something that I value a lot in them. And often that dreamlike, well, most of the time that dreamlike quality is accidental. And I think in this case, it's, it's very accidental. Um, but I think in this case, like, yeah, like this movie really like this movie, the dreamlike quality is like very strong. So like it opens in media res, no explanation for what we're seeing, no explanation for who these people are, but also the imagery is so evocative of Manson, which just happened the year before. And it, it yeah, it's like so, somebody, somebody is, and the rest of the movie has a sort of dream logic that it flows from this, you know? Um, nothing really ties together. Nothing makes sense. The story is not told in any sort of sensible way. The camera does things that have, that are, are you know, have no real explanation. And, like, sort of in the way that, you know, in your dreams, you don't really you don't really create the mise-en-scene in your dreams. Like, the rooms <laughs> can shift. Um, you mm -hmm. know, you... you the ground can shift from under you. Characters can turn into other characters. Tones. Yeah. Like people, uh, people from your, your life or people, you know, famous people can show up in strange guises. Uh, that's what this feels like to me. Mm -hmm. Like by accident, this is one of the most evocative, like, uh, depictions of a dreamscape. Well, and, and all of the music going in and yeah. out and the way that it ends with that girl just standing up and being like, I have something to confess. It was like, it was me who called the cops. And I was just I sitting there going, what? 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 Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is after 20 minutes of an orgy. Yeah. Like it, it, and I, and I, I looked at the time. It is 20 minutes from the, st yeah. from the start Almost exactly. to yeah. this, this end of this orgy anyway. There's multiple orgies, but this first one is like 20 minutes long. And then, yeah, randomly she just gets up and speaks it. You're, you're kind of like, okay, well, I guess they were after someone for some reason. So, and, and I think they mentioned something like they, you know, they... They were the ones that tipped off the police or something. So but what police you get this idea that maybe <laughs> that's why they attacked her. <laughs> yeah. But it's also yeah, exactly. It's also up in the air and, and gray. It's it's so strange. And then it goes into um, um, Degard uh, doing the hostess kind of yeah, thing, where she just strips and says like, "Here's the next story that doesn't make any sense." Yeah. Well, and this is what's um, interesting to me because like the opening yeah. twenty minutes or so, I'd say I was kind of a little bit more on the vibe of the film because I was like, this is bizarre, but it, yeah, it I was intrigued, but it does have like a horror element to it that I think speaks to what Ed would mm -hmm. kind of describe the film as where I was like, is this just going to be like a haunted apartment complex and all of the, 
bizarre, like almost found footage, just disturbing, you know, elements of it. And then uh, all of a sudden it was united as a series of vignettes about Degard, who is in like a completely different movie than the movie we were just watching. And they are, you know, strung together by, you know, her you know, dressed scantily clad, slowly pulling her shirts off to reveal more of, of, of her breasts and talking to the camera and basically acting as like a bizarre version of like the crypt keeper in tales from the crypt where she's like, sit down, relax, like take your clothes off, make yourself at home. And I'll tell you this really spicy tale that happened in this house a long, long time ago. And I could not help, but be reminded because this theater that Will and I regularly go to called the King's Way, which is Toronto's grindhouse theater, four people <laughs> show up for the 35 millimeter prints that they play every week. And they've started playing this trailer every single time in front of it for this Robert Aldrich film called Four for Texas from 1963. <laughs> it's got Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin in it, but the actress is the trailer and it's Ursula Andress. And the whole trailer it's a four minute grueling trailer of her standing there, breasts out. She's looking at the camera dressed in a cowgirl outfit and just being like, you know, you know, Dean and Martin and the boys are getting sweaty and they're, you, you know, you should come and check this movie out because the girls, the girls are busting out the West and she's talking in all of these innuendos and it's very clearly <laughs> meant to be like a sexy ploy for Ooh. you to come and watch the film. And it's, it's a, it's a very fun trailer. I enjoy it every single time I go to see it. This is the first thing I've ever seen outside of that trailer to remind Ooh. me of that, of just like very clearly this like sexy sort of foreign woman, just like very <laughs> woodenly saying sexy over the top things written by someone else and like kind of confusingly saying it yes. and it, it being like the entry yeah, point yeah. to the male audience who is supposed to be presumably jerking off to this film. Well, yeah, I mean, um, in the, in the, Somehow. in the classic movies, like in plan nine from outer space, the fact that, like so much is absent, you know, it doesn't really look like a cemetery. It doesn't really look like a flying saucer. And as a result, you as the audience sort of have to project onto it, what a flying saucer looks like, what a cemetery looks like. You as the audience have to do a lot of work. And in this movie, you know, glean from what I can glean from Wood's writings, I mean, it's it see, I, knowing him, I imagine that originally there was supposed to be narration here. Um, there's, there's a scene or there are a couple of scenes in this movie where there's a painting in the background of the scene and the camera will close in on the painting and like the painting will suddenly be illuminated by a flashlight and then the flashlight will turn off and the camera will drift back. Now there's no explanation in the finished film mm -hmm. for what that is. It, clearly it's like some sort of haunted presence in this house, but that's not explained by any of the characters. I think that's where some narration probably would have come in or some additional scenes. And in the absence of yeah. that, like that absence in these Ed Wood movies sometimes, like that's that's where the dreamscape is. Uh, that, that's that's where that's where you have to like. And and in this movie with all this loaded imagery, it just feels like fucked up and wrong. It feels like there's like something something evil about this movie. It feels like a bad dream. 
And there's something always off about like character decisions or just like just things that happen in general. Like, well, one is you, you were mentioning how the camera pans over to the to the um, the picture. There's an I think it's in the same sequence actually where the camera also pans up to like this dark tree that's over looming them outside, mm-hmm. and it again it kind of gives some implication of like haunting or something looking over them, but there's no context to it. Um, and then there's another part, and this is more comedic, I guess, but it, it just feels like strange because they don't really build up to it in any dialogue or character. And it's when they're having, I think, at the second orgy, and uh, uh, two, you know, a, a man and a woman and another man and a woman are uh, having sex, and two of the women start fighting because they're they're both fucking each other's boyfriends. And I'm like, it, it was a, just a confusing moment because you're well, it's an orgy. You know, I thought that was the whole point. So the, the the actual like reason for them rolling around naked on the ground and fighting is just it seemed out of nowhere. And, and in that sense, I kind of got I also like I that know, the, the men have it, the but, uh, shirts on and are just like dancing around without pants. And that's like that's the only way that they're naked. Yeah. <laughs> But 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 but, but the, the whole second orgy oh, sequence yeah. threw me off because it's I think it's mostly all of the same actors, but just like the horror vibes aren't yeah. as strong. There's like Hawaiian like tiki bar music playing and slide guitar. Yeah, it's like shit. slide yeah. guitar. Shit. I was like, what? And the it fuck also is makes going? less logical sense than the first vignette, the more Mansity <laughs> vignette. It's like they all come in. They're doing orgy stuff, yep. then they're fighting, then they're doing orgy stuff. And yeah, there's like Hawaiian tiki music. And like <laughs> if this were if this were your dreamscape, you would your subconscious would know what the painting meant, what the tree meant, why they're fighting. But because this is not your dreamscape, you're looking at someone else's mm-hmm. dreamscape. At least that's my reading of this film. Well, and, uh, and then you and then it ends with Degard just being yeah, like, and, wasn't that a wild party? Yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know? Is that what I was watching? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it's it's and then they also do weird things like because it you know we're assuming that this is unfinished and I think you know that there's a strong case for that yeah. <laughs> uh, is in the middle of these orgy sex scenes they'll have the music that we've already said is kind of strange like it goes from like big band to jazz to Hawaiian slide guitar and whatever else but it'll stop in the middle of the sex scene and it's just and they just keep going so oh yeah it, it and you'll just get awkward like, silence you know, and like the moans every so often yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's so it's the most bizarre thing and it happens i think a few times in this and and every single time i was just it makes you feel like you're watching excess footage that's not supposed to be there but they just kept the orgy going it's it's a very interesting and strange feeling yeah like so the, the, the second the second orgy definitely was like a little bit less interesting to me than the first one, just in terms of like pure style vibes. The third one I thought was a little bit stronger because it, yeah. it had like a little bit of a more interesting character dynamic, which was Ushi Degard, uh, her like tumultuous relationship with this client who she agrees to let in. But, you know, she can tell that he's kind of like a, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of a rough character the same way that maybe the detective was in the last film. And he basically does like assault her to like this like epic like fantasy music or something i couldn't quite figure out what that music was except for i guess that it was just meant to be tonally this is meant to be a little bit darker and there is this one weird moment uh where to be honest it seems like the most intentional direction that's in it oddly enough where the the 
you know, the assault is happening. And he does this zoom in on her face as her like hair is, is everywhere and everything. And it becomes almost like disorienting and kind of just all tangled. Right. Um, and I don't know, it felt intentional, but it, I mean, with everything else, it's hard to say, but it, that seemed like one of the most intentional directions that I saw in the, in the film camera camera wise. It's also strange though, this vignette coming, like this is the most, um, for want of a better term, plot heavy vignette of the film. Like the first, the first two are just orgy scenes. Then there's this one where there are like actual sort of characters, but you know, as you say the the sound, it sounds like they put the microphone in a tin can on the other side of the room and with, <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. And with Ushi Degard, you know, reading these lines as if phonetically, um, there's this strange, like distanced quality and it looks like whatever relationship these two have, it, it again, feels like you're just joining it in media res. And then the segment just kind of peters out with this. Like, it looks like they just kept the camera running and like the actors just started goofing off a little bit, which is by the way, is definitely the case of the final <laughs> segment of the film, which is, <laughs> which is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like because you're talking about the switch where the, someone's just yeah. like, maybe you need a nice guy like Rick, you know, not a guy who's going to like assault you. And then it turns into a second sex scene where it's on the exact same set with a different guy. And it's like now she's, you know, it's the difference in sort of sex roughness. Now she's being like, you know, made love to. And there's like a country love ballad guitar twanging. And, you know, she's. Uh, you know, she's having and, sex a little bit wildly, but it's, you know, it's a little bit more uh, o- overtly pleasurable. And, you know, th- yeah, that 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 element ending where the actor who at one point is just doing a handstand yes. and he's doing it with his clothes on at first. And at in the this one of the scene. Yeah. yeah. And then it, the scene ends with him doing the handstand again, but he's just full hog out wild <laughs> and it is just bushy and flopping. <laughs> I've never seen an upside down man handstand with his cock just flying in the wind like that before. So I'll, I'll give credit to Ed Wood on that one. That to me was Oh yeah. That, and that to me was a hundred percent like Ed Wood. Like it says, we were saying in the synopsis here that it was like, they think eventually he was replaced by the producer cameraman that, that moment just felt so Ed Wood. It was, they're laughing together too, as they're doing it. It it reminded me of like when the girls are hanging out in, uh, I, I always do this every single time we just talked about it. Uh, Take it out. Take it out and trade. (laughs) Um, it reminded me yeah, it reminded me of like when they're just hanging out and kind of dancing and having a good time. That felt very much like Ed Wood just kind of giving that comedic and fun energy into the scene a little bit and letting them let loose. Yeah, so that was and cool. once again, Ushi Degard and funny. <laughs> wasn't that really something else? And I was like, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very true, very true, Ushi. If that's what they um, cut out, what they left yeah, it must be pure gold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and and then I think the last story, the fourth oh, story, is a uh, brief foray into lesbian sex um, and doing a move that, once again, yes. I'm not totally sure that I've seen before, which is just Ushi Degard uh, just rubbing her breasts along the woman's pubic hair. I was like, I don't, uh, fair yeah. enough. Now, if Ed Wood <laughs> was indeed fired from this movie, like perhaps it happened halfway through this segment because like the two of them, Ushi and this other woman are just on this bed frolicking. And then towards the end, they just like start sitting there blankly. And Ushi says like, 
do they want us to do something? You know, something like yeah. that. Like, like the yeah, I think, but, I, I think, I think I wrote it down. It's, it's what else does he want us to do? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, did the director just leave set at that point? It feels like a Warhol screen test, you know, just, yeah. just plant the camera in front of them and see what happens. Uh, yeah. Like what a, yeah, what a bizarre end the, the whole movie with her breaking the fourth wall within the scene. So it's not her doing like the hostess thing. So she's doing the hostess thing within the scene now. And she says something like, you're still here, people get out. And it's kind of this like, <laughs> we want to have you know, some that, fun, that break the fourth wall game, yeah. kind of corny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that to me also felt like Ed Wood. So, although I've, you know, you've definitely seen something like that before, but it seemed like his sense of humor. I, I would definitely agree. It seems like his sense of humor and like the whole, um, you know, the, the, the character, the character names, like, I think one of them is like Fleckless Flossie or something like <laughs> You know, like the, and the the whole setting of it's like, oh, it's at this like haunted bordello, you know, feels feels, you know, in line with what we saw in Take It Out in Trade. Um, um, and yeah, the, the playful fourth wall breaking stuff, too. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's all good. I mean, I, I'll just say person like 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 ultimately, if we are maybe pivoting towards reductive rating round on the only house in town because that is it it is only a 50 minute unfinished uh largely plotless or like you know not designed to be completely understood finished edit um i will say that you know there was something that should have been called the only orgy in town yeah i mean (laughs) for sure to to will's credit (laughs) seems like it it's just the same people fucking for 50 minutes coming together in different ways i definitely knew that when i invited him on the podcast i was like he's gonna make us watch 50 minutes of unfinished orgy footage by by ed wood and i'm gonna have to we're gonna have to talk about the dreamlike poetry of it all <laughs> and I, I i will say that there is a Let's go. especially the opening 20 minutes or so there is a kind of ugliness and incompleteness and to it that does have like an, an intentional horror vibe to the I think the way that it was kind of put together and 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 the way that it was shot because you could say like there is like some Manson uh, imagery to it there is like a you know a more violent aspect to it and the only issue for me with this and which does I think drop it a little bit below only one issue uh, only one issue. That's all. I, yeah. Other than the fact that I have no idea what's going on and I couldn't hear most of the movie. Um, I would say that what I go into an Ed Wood movie kind of expecting um, is, uh, you know, the, the kind of the personality factor. And the, as we were mentioning, there are a couple moments where you kind of feel it. Uh, yeah. But but this did remind me more of something like Jailbait, where it, his attempt at kind of like a very uh, kind of a straightforward noir. And there is some detail in it uh, about like the, you know, the facial reconstruction surgery and some other stuff in it that is, you know, that is Ed Wood. But it uh, just stylistically and tonally, it doesn't quite have the sort of like carnival freak affection or the do it yourself, like old Hollywood pastiche or as much of his like specific sexual diversity or specific, you know, uh, in interest in the kinds of people he hangs out with in, in LA. So this for me did not, uh, quite hit the level of liking yet. As uh, Will said in the intro, maybe I just need to bang my head a little bit harder <laughs> on the desk and give it another go and, and, and see what happens. But, uh, you know, it's not completely without interest. So this this does land in, in, in the two-star territory for I'll me where it. I'm like, you know, how I, I can't, you know, you know, it, 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 it's hard to judge something 
falling on the level on the traditional star rating system when what you're dealing with is something like this, I'll say. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much right there with you. I, I think that the first, um, like I was really intrigued, honestly, the first 10 minutes with the like genuinely kind of creepy tone that he's giving uh, this girl on the run in this weird, you know, kind of uh, uh, rundown house. And, um, and when they find her like that, that the, the initial assault is very like, wow, like this is, this is what we're watching in the first five minutes of this, this movie. Yeah, picking where, her up and like taking her go. down that rickety and for, staircase and everything. It's, you know, there's, there's some power to it. Yeah, it's wild. And, um, and again, he's, he's kind of capturing a true horror tone, strangely enough, which you're not exactly used to because usually he's balancing a lot of different tones at the same time. Um, but as the, the orgy scene goes, it seems to just kind of inexplicably morph into more of that like fun, loving sex comedy stuff that, uh, even though this is much stranger, obviously, um, that Edward uh, seems to normally do. Um, and just in that first 20 minutes, it was strange to go from such a, like almost harrowing scene to just a fun loving orgy. Uh, and you don't know where that, that transition really is. It's, it's, it's really strange to watch. Um, but there is some charm to like his, the, the instrumentals that he uses for, for the sex scenes. Like we were saying, there's like Hawaiian slide guitar and jazz and big band and, um, uh, and in the other, the, the movie we previously talked about rock, like organ rock and stuff. It's just, there, there, there's things here that are still very Ed Wood. Um, I just, there, there was almost too much like uh, incoherent orgy <laughs> that mm. I couldn't <laughs> quite wrap my head around with his more Ed Woodisms that I've come to kind of enjoy and somewhat love. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's in the two territory, but I mean, this thing is, strange and, and wild. And, 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 uh, I don't know and if Ushie I would like, does have a it, weird energy the, to her, I will say. <laughs> it seems like she could honestly host like something that would be more horror-esque um, if she was given the chance. Uh, I haven't watched much of her. We only talked about her briefly in the Kentucky Fried movie, so I haven't seen Will, her. Will, how is she in the stuff, uh, Russ but, Meyer stuff? You've seen um, those, right? Well, I think she's probably better served by the Ross Meyer movies. I think they play to her strengths uh, a little more. Mm. Although, although you know what, I think this plays to some of her strengths as well. Yeah, I, I think like there's mo- like I like when she looks at the camera and does the line. It's just with everything else, it's it's kind of um, like at the end. I mean, um, with everything else though, it's just kind of uh, it, it doesn't fit with like the rest of what I've seen. Whereas I think um, tr- trade is is more. Strangely enough, even though there is a lot of sporadic editing and jump cuts and everything, I, I was able to kind of understand what was happening at least a little bit better. This has, like, you really don't have a story to latch on to here at all. So for the most part, you're just watching, like, a strange... There's a, there's a house orgies. where fucked up um, And then every once in a while happens. you get, like, a... Yeah, so you, need and to then, know. you know, but then you'll get some charming Edwoodisms like a naked man doing a handstand. So there are still <laughs> some things here to get entertainment out of, but it was just too much dry humping orgy for me <laughs> yeah so yeah for, for, for mean, you will w- walk us through how this is ed wood's last year at mary and bad yeah baby. last last year at mary and bad for sure um i mean I, <laughs> I it's much harder to make the case for this as like a success on ed wood's terms than as you know take it out in trade was it, it's it's um but i mean 
I don't think I've seen a movie that is quite this evocative of what a dream feels like, at least for me. Um, not that I've dreamed this exact dream, mm-hmm. but I've dreamed this kind of logic, this, <laughs> this kind of atmosphere. Um, and, it, you know, th- there are a lot of, um, I think there are a lot of, if you showed me just a bunch of footage from an unfinished movie, sort of taped together with some random music and a title card, I think a lot of the times it would be, you know, just just very boring. But there's so much in this movie that is suggestive and evocative, and it really all really does combine into a kind of disquieting experience, like none I've I've quite felt. So um, yeah, you guys are just gonna have to let me do this. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. yeah, I love it. That might be the biggest discrepancy in rating we've lo- ever had on the show, but yeah. I love it. I think it is in the history of the show, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, are you gonna when you put it up uh, on the Sleezoids podcast letterbox, Josh? You're gonna have to go like three and a half to make yeah, up for gonna, the two gonna, and it, five. Yeah, it's gonna yeah, it's gonna have I mean? to hang out around there. Sleezoids yeah, approved, it up, love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gonna have to do the math on that one. That's killer. Um, but yeah, no, this was. Uh, I, I think that that's gonna wrap it up for our uh, Ed Wood long lost but but found pornography. Uh, thanks so much, uh, <laughs> Will, for uh, joining us and for bringing these uh, films with you. Uh, this is usually the part of the show where we have you uh, plug something if you've got anything going on. What's going on in uh, Important Cinema Club and Michael and Us land? Oh, you know, just the usual. Um, I I forget exactly what, but uh, sorry, what a, what a terrible self promoter <laughs> I am. Listen, folks, it's the Important Cinema Club. Uh, me and my good buddy Justin DeClue. Uh, traversing all of film history from the high to the low. Um, and uh, Michael and us is the culture and politics podcast. I hope I host with my good buddy, Luke Savage. Um, and, uh, you know, pick one, pick both. Um, listen to as much or as little as you want. Yeah, do it <laughs> up. I can definitely uh, rec- recommend that. And also there is an old episode of the podcast where we talked about Albert Pune with both uh, Will and Justin uh, at, at 1.2 for anyone oh, who yeah. uh, hasn't maybe checked those out. Go back and do that. Will Will has been around on the for a while talking about and, and, and talking about the movies that he's been. Uh, would, I, I mentioned I was Googling these titles and I found Will's articles. One of these articles was from 2016. So he's wow. been on this beat for a while and it was titled preliminary thoughts on the long lost ed wood film the only house in town so if you want more of his thoughts there are more thoughts about ed wood out there on the internet and over on his letterboxd um but for uh, our listeners we are going to be back in one week's time where we are once again doing a left turn we spent two weeks in ed woodland and uh we definitely uh, felt the need to switch it up a little bit and uh we are going to be doing uh, some chain gang uh, prison films. We are going to be doing one that I've uh, got to see on a print here in Toronto just a year or two ago that I've been very excited to uh, bring on the show at some point. Uh, we are going to be talking about I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang from 1932, directed by Mervyn Leroy, starring Paul Muni, uh, which is a really cool pre-code prison film that was actually made to like raise awareness of how horrible the sort of like labor conditions were in American prisons. So we're going to be talking about that film and of course pairing it 
with a film a little bit, maybe people know a little bit more than that one, uh, but in a similar sort of milieu, we're going to be talking about Cool Hand Luke from 1967, starring Paul Newman and George Kennedy. Um, so that's what you can expect on the Patreon in one week's time. And then in two weeks time, that is meant to set up uh, a guest who had actually picked some prison films I'm excited to talk about as well, or at least some sort of post-prison films, uh, maybe more about rehabilitation. Uh, we're going to be talking about one film called uh, Straight Time, starring uh, Dustin Hoffman and uh, written by uh, Ed Bunker with also a pass at the screenplay by one Michael Mann and definitely kind of fits in his wheelhouse of, you know, sort of criminals on parole and maybe trying to find regular jobs and it being, you know, sort of uh, existential and kind of difficult. And we're going to be pairing that film with the Coen brothers Raising Arizona starring Nicholas Cage. Uh, which I am in desperate need of a revisit. I have not watched that since I was a teenager, so I don't even know that I could say what the the plot of that one is anymore. But I remember really liking it when I was younger. That that might have been like one of my first like Nick Cage, what a weird guy, <laughs> movies. But yeah, so that's what you can look forward to over the next. Uh, uh, two two weeks uh, here with us. So thanks so much uh, as always for uh, listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, everybody. And uh, by the way, if you were wondering why I wasn't answering anything in the outro, we were having some technical difficulties. Um, there was a delay, all that. I think for the most part we cleaned it up, but thanks for listening and uh, hopefully it wasn't annoying. Um, and if you don't think I'm excited for Nick Cage, then you don't know who I am. All right. Anyway, peace out, guys. Keep it sleazy.